Hey everybody, welcome to In Context Theology. My name is Jonathan Tony. Lindley will be joining shortly, but I wanted to have a few minutes with you up front because, look, I know you guys listen to these episodes because you want these structured, philosophical, detailed, historical takes, and you come to us because we can give you that. And that's what I'm here to to do right now. And I have to do it without Lindley because he can't hang with this level of intellect that I'm about to reference. And I just didn't want to bring him into it and then I have to explain it to him. It's this whole thing. So in this episode today, we're going to be talking about proofs and science and basically arguments about God. Does he exist? Does he not exist? We've been hearing the same arguments over and over and again. So I want to start this off with well, you know, Lindley refers to all these old philosophers and theologians, and I, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to refer to the TV show Friends, uh, Phoebe Buffay, who was kind of her own philosopher in some regards. She was arguing with Ross in this one episode about evolution, and Ross is like, it's fact. How can you deny fact? She's like, I'm just not convinced on it. And she says to him, what's this obsessive need you have to make everyone agree with you? I think maybe you should put Ross under the microscope. I'm doing this off from memory, by the way. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm a big fan, but... I got, I got my limits. And uh, Ross says to her, evolution is the only possibility, Phoebe. And she said, could you just open your mind? Wasn't there a time when the brightest minds in the world believed that the world was flat? And then up till like, what, you know, 50 years ago? This is my Phoebe Buffet impression. You all thought the atom was the smallest thing until you split it open and like this whole mess of crap came out. Now you're telling me that you're so unbelievably arrogant that you can't admit that there's a teeny tiny possibility that you could be wrong about this? And Ross says, there might be a teeny tiny possibility and Phoebe says, wow, I can't believe you just caved. You just abandoned your whole belief system. I mean, before that, I didn't agree with you, but at least I respected you. How are you going to go to work? Anyway, I bring that up because I know some of our listeners <laughs> probably on my same level of education. But I think that's kind of like the arguments that we, we hear over and over is just like the same bullet points thrown back and forth. And we'll get into this a little bit more. But I want to set the stage to say maybe, you know, just depending on what side of this this archaic argument you're on, does God exist? Does he not exist? have the ability to at least admit that maybe you don't know everything there is to know. And I think if we can approach our arguments with that, with a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of understanding, trying to understand where the other people are coming from, the arguments will get much better. And so what we're going to talk about today is that basically we've been throwing the same bullet points back and forth. If you go on Facebook, it's just it's awful for many reasons, but these with these kinds of discussions in general, it's the same arguments over and over again. So what we're going to look at today is how do we make a better argument, depending on what side we're on. Obviously, we're going to be on the side of arguing for God, but we, we kind of even challenge that. And then you'll hear me really, really struggle with one of these uh, these theories uh, called the ontological argument, and uh, that's going to just be fun. You can't see me sweating, but I'm sweating a lot trying to wrap my head around it. So here we go. Hope you enjoy it. All right, well, the boys are back here from a distance of a few states, Jacksonville to Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, I find it ironic we both live in cities that are named after <laughs> not the most wonderful people, but, uh, you know, that just sounds like us. Uh, actually, you you live in Jacksonville Beach. You're not part of the, the, the Jacksonville type, are you? No, no, not at all. And um, the beach culture is very different than the rest of Jacksonville. So that's kind of where I am. <laughs> that it is. I, I've lived in both parts and I can attest to that. Well, 
what we're talking about tonight is just something super simple. We'll probably wrap this podcast up in like three minutes. It's does God exist, you know, <laughs> and it's just really easy to sum up. Uh, no, but what, what we're going to kind of focus on tonight, and I, I talked a little bit about this in the introduction, is the value of arguments. And, you know, as we've discussed on this show many times, we, we seem to have the same arguments over and over on social media. And there's a lot of just bullet points thrown at each other and you know, as somebody that doesn't engage a lot online, but has to like sift through a bunch of memes and all this stuff, it just, the quality of arguments, I feel like we could do a much better job. If you're gonna make me sit here and listen to all this stuff, you could at least do a better job, people who like to argue. And I, that's what, kind of what we're gonna discuss tonight. So I think we've all sat through uh, maybe an apologetics or uh, somebody on Facebook ranting against atheists of like, this is why God exists, it's so clear, you're an idiot if you don't get this, what's your problem? But we've also sat through, how, how could you believe in God? What are you, stupid? And it's kind of the same arguments we've been having for thousands of years, and yet we're still having them. So that's kind of what we want to look at tonight is the quality of arguments. How do you, even if you're not a believer in God, how can you even better your side of the argument? How can we have better discussions? And I was talking to a friend recently. I said, uh, I think the value or the value of our conversations and debates and arguments would, would go a lot farther if we could all admit that we're just a little bit full of crap <laughs> to an extent of like, you know, like let's all admit that maybe we're not the super smart experts. Um, and so this is going to help you in your arguments at least be a little bit less full of crap. Uh, that's kind of the goal uh, of today's podcast. Lindsay, does that sound accurate or did I just derail the whole thing? No, you're good. You're good. Uh, um, I think we do want to talk about it from a Christian perspective, obviously, as part of the podcast. Right. We want to talk about, you know, how do you make an argument? What constitutes a good argument? Um, and um, then what is the result of the argument? Is there a takeaway right. from the argument? Rather than simply um, walking away with the feeling of, of I, well, I whipped that guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because especially from a Christian standpoint, I've never really seen anyone argued into the kingdom of God. Obviously, there is power in, uh, you know, intelligent discussions and research and all that kind of stuff but in the terms of just going back and forth to people i've never seen anyone say you know what you're right and thank you for belittling me how do i sign up for the salvation thing so <laughs> right. well kicking things off i'm just going to give lindley a really quick lowball question something you sum up in the next 10 minutes does god exist <laughs> well uh, when you put it that way um i think ultimately the answer is yes the question becomes is how does one arrive at that conclusion if one can arrive at the conclusion mm -hmm. um, and, and therefore, and how did you get there? What's the path to that? Um, and what are the parts of the belief that form your acceptance of that idea? So I do think that is something that's important. I do think the answer is yes, there is a God. But let me be clear. I don't think that it's clear cut. Okay. Neither do I think, though, on the other hand, that there is a proof that is clear-cut that there is no God. Mm -hmm. So I don't think either side wins here. And that is probably yeah. key to what I believe. What I think now then becomes is, let's just explore what is out there. And then I think we would think, what makes the argument good versus what makes the argument bad, right? right. And I, so that's how I would proceed. And I think there is a lot there um, that we can talk about tonight. Yeah. And I think with this subject in mind, I actually put this in my first book, was like, at some point, everybody's line of thinking sounds ridiculous to somebody else. Like, no, but to your point, you know, whether you're arguing against God, you just believe that we just spontaneously combusted from nothing and like, it's just all, you know, it's all meaning. Well, that doesn't really answer anything. In the same way, it might sound silly that we believe, 
you know, God has always existed and times might sound ridiculous to you. So if we can all agree that some part of this sounds ridiculous, let's move on from there, shall right. we? So take us into what, you know, you've, you've talked about proofs. What exactly is a proof? And, you know, are there any examples that we might know of? Right. So I think, you know, let's start off with examples that we know of because from the examples we can then get to what constitutes a proof. So, you know, if you look at the proofs for the good examples for the proof for God's existence, you probably want to find Aquinas. And if you probably, his five proofs for the existence of God. And that's a 12th, 13th century sort of uh, set of, of thinking. It's important. It's very powerful. I like it. It's worth reading. Um, you can Google it fairly quickly. Aquinas, five proofs for the existence of God. Um, and that that is a good starting point. Um, but I do think that, you know, the concept of proof has changed. So when I say that Aquinas' 12th or 13th century sort of, you know, understanding of what, the, what constitutes a proof for God, I think us in the 21st century have a very different perspective. And, and real quick, when you're saying proofs, are you, you're not saying like, well, if you look at the distance from the stars to this, like that proves, you're, it means something different in this term, right? That's right. And we're going to come to that. This is why we want to, what constitutes a proof, right? Mm -hmm. Is it a set of, um, is it a set of observations? that leads to a proof? Is it, is it a sort of logical ideas, a, a syllogistic argument that brings about this proof? Um, is it a probabilistic view that talks about a proof, right? So I'm, I'm confident that that is the case, that that something is highly probable, 90% confidence in that fact. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and by the way, we do this a lot now within statistics, right? We say it's, it is, you know, it's a 30% chance X will happen plus or minus, you know, some error factor of three or four or five or some other, you know, percentage, mm -hmm. right? So um, a lot of times we do this nowadays and our confidence factor is 98% that it's going to rain tomorrow plus or minus 3%. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and so those plus or minus 3% do, ma do matter. It tells you that we don't have a something called certainty. Hmm. So certainty is not there, right? But I have yeah. a confidence that that is the case. And we do this quite often. Yeah. And so it's not unrealistic to say, you know, a 99% chance this, we can put credible faith on that, you know, instead of looking for the loopholes. That's right. That's right. And so, again, another important point there is that, is that, just because there's a 1% chance it may not be true is not, doesn't give you the, it shouldn't give you the feeling that, ooh, I can exit out of that belief yes, because it's only because yeah. there's that 1% chance it may not be true, right? Yeah. And speaking to our, our you know, our culture, you know, we've been through the pandemic and everything and everybody was looking for that one well, I knew a friend that died from, you know, whatever the excuse is. Every, it's always the people, the people that know a lot of people are also the ones that are like kind of going against science and all, you know, like, uh, you sure know a lot of people. Uh, no, but I do get that. But uh, but I just beyond that, that situation, people are kind of looking for, you know, cracks in the wall, something they we, we could say, well, this 1% is wrong, therefore everything is wrong. But we, we don't do that with anything else unless it's something that we you know, feel differently about, or we want to make an argument. So we just look for some gap in the, and we can just dismantle the whole thing based on that one little thing that maybe has not been, you know, proven all the way the rest of the 99% has. Right. And so this is where you start to see in the society that we're in right now. And, and unfortunately it is a function of our, our current society more so than any time in the past. Uh, people kind of come with a, an idea that they already have and then look for the arguments that support what they already believe, right? Now, mm -hmm. that belief that they have is probably constituted by a set of other beliefs that they have, right? So when you start to scratch the surface of the 
of of the you know the 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 point that they're trying to argue with this at this point in time it's based on some other sets of beliefs and so if you go you need to you really need to go backwards rather than forwards from to find out what they really are thinking because it's undergirded by some other things that probably have flaws in them as well as ideas um when it comes to the word science this is the most abused term um by both sides of any argument as if somehow most of these people um, uh, who say I'm on the side of science, I wonder if they are science scientists themselves and right. what constitutes science. So we'll talk a little bit about that later on, what constitutes science. Mm-hmm. Um, but so back to the proof model, the idea here is I've got to make some sort of argument, some set of premises that's syllogistically. Um, I have to kind of come with some data points that, that give credence to what I'm saying. And then we have to believe that the data points are sufficient enough, right, to guarantee what I am saying. So, mm-hmm. for example, if I collect data about weather, having tried to cr- tell you that it's going to rain tomorrow based on one day's data, which is yesterday, is probably not a really good way. What do, mm-hmm. what do weather people do? They collect data over one day, one month, one year, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, and it allows them to create models that allow us to basically sort of predict what tomorrow will be like based on what they've seen in the past. So for predictive uh, analytics, we call it, the modeling then comes from the more data you have, the better you are going to be able to use as input into your models to predict better, right? So again, so the more data points you have, the better your are, the strength of your argument. So that's one way to look at it. Gotcha. Can I read this quote, kind of going along the lines with this, uh, from this book, The Death of Expertise, uh, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. I actually just used this in a sermon. I'm going to repeat, pulling content from other places, but I think it kind of goes along with what we've been talking about here. He said, the author said, these are dangerous times. Never have so many people had so much access to so much knowledge and yet have been so resistant to learn anything. At the root of all this is an inability among lay people to understand that experts being wrong on, wrong on occasion about certain issues is not the same thing as experts being wrong constantly on everything. The fact of the matter is that experts are more often right than wrong, especially on essential matters of fact, and yet the public constantly searches for the loopholes in expert knowledge that will allow them to disregard all expert advice they don't like. And <laughs> I think that just kind of sounds like exactly what you're talking about. Even just like, well, I'm, science says this. I'm like, well, I, I just hear science constantly used as like the anti- the antithesis of God. It's like, well, you either believe God or science. I think what we're going to discuss here is where science and God overlap each other. You know, God, especially from our view, God created science. Why are we going to be against it? Um, and I, it annoys me as a Christian hearing people argue against a lot of scientific fact that's been proven or mostly, pro- again, the 99% proven. Um, I don't think we're as at odds with some of these things as, as it feels like we are. No, you're, you're absolutely right. We are not at odds in many cases, and this is why the whole argument of science and religion, uh, faith and reason um, is another way to describe it, um, has always been on the docket, has always been uh, discussed, has always been uh, something that we want to talk about mm-hmm. and have had... We Some people portray them as at odds with one another, but I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. The actual f- fact of the matter is is that I think there are, they are different domains to search of different pieces of information. So Stephen Jay Gould, the famous um, paleontologist and biologist and other, you know, important, you know, degrees that he probably holds, um, um, 
he talks about the overlapping magisterium of the two different areas. One is the church and the discussion about God and the things that matter to humanity in a certain sort of way. Um, and then there are those areas of science that we, and I will use the term science for now, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means later, and science. And then really, science has a domain which it is an expert in and mm -hmm. is, co is highly competent in. Um, so they don't have to be at odds with one another. They just have different domains, yeah. right? So it's different ways of looking at different of maybe sometimes the same thing, but at uh, one is has a depth in one area and one has an expertise in a different area. So one, you know, one of the common arguments you'll hear for the the existence of God, it's something I actually cling to as well, and I'm I'm not so sure it's uh, it passes the smell test in, in today's standards. Is you know, all right, you look at our DNA, or you look at the world and the planets and all these things. Where else could they have come from? They just spontaneously combusted into existence. Uh, but if we just say, well, it's God, it, it feels kind of weak. Um, in this realm of what we're talking about, is it a weak argument? Where are the gaps in this? Um, how can we do better? No, I actually think it's a very strong argument. Um, so there are probably some people who think it's a weak argument, but it actually is a strong argument, the argument from design. When you see the orchestration of all the things that we have in, in the, that we know in the known universe, um, there seems to be order. There seems to be some sort of design. Um, and that's the classical example of, you know, you see this order in design, and therefore there's a, there has to be a designer. Now, mm -hmm. Richard Dawkins in his books calls that designer, he actually thinks of it as evolution itself. And he actually thinks of it as the as a blind watchmaker model, right? So that the, the watchmaker or the designer is actually quite blind, and it is the process of evolution. Um, I think that's a disingenuous argument on his part because what ends up happening is he's once he he cannot really discount the argument. So what he tries to do is replace the concept of God, the designer, with some sort of other process that he calls evolution. Mm. But he's therefore admitting though that it is designed in a particular way. Mm. And so I think that therefore he he's 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 disingenuous in his argument um and 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 that's richard for you he's very good at arguing his points and misleading people but i think in this particular case he's wrong so i think that the design argument is a powerful argument attached to the design argument also is the concept of what we call the cosmological argument which is the fact that you know if you think about it something started this right something started this process and so in the cosmological argument we have the notion of like no created being can create itself, mm -hmm. right? And therefore, so who created me, who created someone else, who created the universe, et cetera, et cetera. If we go back in regressing as who created X, who created before X, and who created before before X, and so forth, yeah, get to the point where at some point you can't just keep going infinitely. You have to stop at some point. That means there must be a self-existing being. And that self-existing being is typically what we assign to God, Mm -hmm. So I think that's another way to look at that sort of design argument is that there has to be someone ultimately at the beginning of the process who kicks it off. Um, you may well call it the blind watchmaker. You may call it evolution. I call that God. And when I attach that cosmological argument to the design argument that there's, there's a, it seems to be well organized, then I think, and well designed, I think, with a purpose seemingly, then I think that that is... Um, a strong argument for God. Now, what I said here, it's a strong argument for God, to go back to part of our earlier discussion, that doesn't mean that I have absolute certainty based on that, right? But what I do believe is that it is worth further investigation. 
and that's why it's a good argument it it has its strengths mm. it potentially has its weaknesses because there is no absolute certainty or absolute guarantee but that is what i would call a strong argument gotcha so our goal is maybe not to take every argument and, and throw it like let's say we're in a discussion with somebody we're not going to say, well, that's a good point. Hmm, let me throw it in. It's to, to look for the ones that are in the 99 percentile type things that we were talking about earlier um, and, and use those as our something we can kind of hang our hat on. Does that sound right? Right. Exactly. So we have we need we need to look at strong arguments. I think many times what we want to do in modern day society is refute someone else's point. Yeah. And, yeah. and then we end up in attempting to refute. We end up making silly statements um, yeah. and making silly claims that are unstantiatable. And those claims then are what make us look silly. Yeah. Yeah. And you see this all, all the time is people kind of drift into science or something, trying to argue this point for God and you end up just tripping yourself up. And that's something I, I keep in mind all the time on this podcast is the quickest way to sound stupid is to try to sound smarter than I am. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of just try to stay in my lane. Are there any uh, arguments for God that you would say uh, are a weak argument? One that, like, let's say you were having a discussion with an atheist about this subject, uh, something that you would not pull out of your bag. Well, I think, you know, there's, n look, I think that most people who have these arguments, and, I, and I'll, I'll hear, I will stand on, the five main arguments from from Augustine, uh, from Aquinas, I think that the last two arguments, the teleological and the cosmological argument, uh, and the you know, I think those are two powerful arguments for the concept of God. We'll talk very quickly, shortly, about the ontological argument. I think anything beyond that then becomes very difficult to argue because mm. you just they they don't have the depth and the logical coherency that we expect in the modern world, right? Gotcha. So you know. Your personal experience about that I experienced God, that's a form of argumentation. Yes, I experienced God. I, I think that has some value, but I don't think that's sufficient to, that we would, one, want to say is a strong argument for the existence of God. Right, it's a right. powerful personal experience, doesn't constitute an argument for God. And that's kind of what I would stay away from. Gotcha. So it's, it's like a, something you should add on, but it shouldn't be like a foundational argument. That's correct. That's it, correct. Because that's what we're looking for here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned ontological argument. We've talked about this one in the past. Can you explain what that is? And is that one of Aquinas's? Five? No, this is this is probably this is Anselm. So Anselm okay. um, came up with what's called the ontological argument in the 12th century. Again, we're going back quite a few hundred years, but I think it is the strongest argument. Now, it's a philosophical argument and not an argument from typically um, what we call keep calling science. Right? His argument is one which quite. Is simple and brilliant at the same time, but somewhat difficult sometimes for people to understand. And it, it goes something like this. What is the greatest thing that you can think of? Something we typically assign to God. What is the greatest being or something that you can think of? And if you can think of what that is, that is, could be God. But there's something greater than that, isn't there? There's not just something that you can think of. There's something that you can think of and exists, that is the greatest thing. And therefore, that greatest thing that you can think of plus existence implies that that would be God and then a God who exists. Does that make sense? 
No. Okay, so let me try it again. <laughs> right? Think about. I'm, just, the gr- I'm speaking for the people. Listening. That's right. Yeah. So think about it this way: What is the greatest being that you can think of that you can conceive in your mind? Mm-hmm. That we call God. Okay. Yeah. Now, therefore, I've conceived of that mentally. I can understand what that implies. But what's greater than something that I can think of? Something that also exists. So greater than something that I can think of. One level greater than that is something that is I can conceive of and it actually or he or she actually exists. Therefore, something is greater than even something I can think of. And that's something that is greater than I can think of and it exists. Therefore, God exists because that is God by definition. All right, let's walk through this. So let's say I'm not, you know, coming from the standpoint I'm coming from and I'm like I'm agnostic. And you say, think of the greatest thing you can think of. I'm like, okay, let's say giant Tom Hanks in the sky who gives out free money and every, you know, like yep. it's this wonderful being that I've created in my mind. That's, you know, that's your conception of God. Yes. Okay. So he doesn't exist, but because I imagined this large benevolent thing, something therefore has to be because I have the ability to imagine this. Think that about means that. So- Okay. Yeah, so think about, you're, you're in the right track. Think about what you just said. This is this wonderful, great, amazing, perfect, everything being, okay? What are we trying to argue here? We're trying to argue that does God exist or not exist? So mm. that great being that you can conceive of, you can think of, if that was a real thing that existed, that's actually greater than just even the fact that it's in your mind. This actually does exist. Right. So, therefore, it's gr- the, the thing that exists is greater, by definition, than the thing that you can think of. Because existence is an additional feature to thinking about it. But how does, how does thinking of it prove that it does exist? And, and what if I imagine the wrong thing? You know, my, my image of God, what if it's, my image of God is, is a false God or something? How does that that justify the existence of a pure loving you know god or are we just talking we're not talking about the god of the bible we're just talking about a god is that the we're talking about that's right the ontological argument is think of the greatest possible being the greatest possible being that you can think of right what's even greater than that then Mm -hmm. what's the only thing that can be greater than something that you think about is something that is that actually exists. So existence is an important aspect of this argument. Remember, we're trying to argue, does God exist or not? So if mm-hmm. I have this wonderful picture of God in my mind, and that wonderful picture of my mind exists, therefore, that's greater. By definition, existence is what makes this concept greater than the one that's in my mind. Hmm. I'm I'm struggling on this. <laughs> okay, so let's let, yeah. so so the question becomes is I've got I'm going to think the 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 best person in the world, right? That I can think of. What does best mean? Best includes all the aspects. Okay, so I can conceive of Jonathan Tony, but if Jonathan only is in my mind. There's actually something better than the picture that I have in my mind of Jonathan. It's the real version of Jonathan. The real version of Jonathan is greater than the 
than the conceived version of, of Jonathan because Jonathan really exists. So the argument is for you to even begin to conceive of a greater being, it took a greater being to give you the ability to, to conceive of that idea in general. No, 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 no. The, the, <laughs> no, 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 no. So, 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 so again, so think about it. Try and think about it this way. I'm thinking, so here's a, does, remember the argument is about does existence, does God exist or not? Okay. So, so there's, I have in my mind this picture of this totally benevolent, perfect, everything that I can conceive of God that's absolutely right. He's perfect in every way, shape, and form. But if I only have a picture of that in my mind, that's just a conception of God. Right. Okay. What's greater than my conception? That conception that actually is in reality existing. The argument is that existence makes, is something, a real chair is better than the chair that's depicted in my mind. Mm -hmm. So when we say greater, if I, if the argument is simply this, I'm trying to focus on what is greater. So I have a picture of a, a chair in my mind, okay? Okay, it's a beautiful, it's perfect in every way, shape, and form, but that doesn't, that, there's actually one chair greater than that by using the term greater. And that mm -hmm. is the chair that actually exists. So that picture in my mind, that perfect, you know, chair, if it really exists, by definition, its existence makes it greater than the conception. I guess where I'm struggling is how does that, you know, if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'm like, think of somebody nice. There's a real person out there that, that does exist. There you go. Doesn't that prove, you know, I, I don't, I'm not seeing the thread of where this would shows the existence of God. Even if you said like, think of somebody wonderful, the fact that you can think of that, the fact that you have a, means that somebody had to put that thought in your mind to begin with that, that makes sense to me, but I'm not connecting with the, the existence. Right. Yeah. So this is a philosophical argument, right? So here's the... Oh, okay. Well, that's okay. why I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I meant it in terms of it's an argumentation of what the word greatest means. Mm, okay. 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 The greatest thing possible. Think about this for a second. The greatest thing possible, right, is not something... So, so let's say I conceive of this chair again. Let's go back to the chair argument, right? Or let's talk, go back to Jonathan. Let's take think about you, Right. If I thought of like a really cool guy, really nice guy, really helpful guy, awesome, compassionate, handsome. caring, handsome, whatever the case may be, right? Like charming. all these, all the charming, all these things. <laughs> if I was to argue and say, I can, I can conceive of that guy, the one level up from just simply conceiving of him is him actually existing. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the same thing applies to God. When I tell you, can you conceive of the what is the what can you conceive of as the greatest possible being of all things, right? And I say, well, I can conceive of a being that is perfect, that is lawful, that is kind, that is compassionate, that is loving, is willing to send his son to die, etc. Like I can list off all these attributes of what this being would be like. There's one attribute that is still missing from the greatest version of that. And the greatest version of that being that I conceived of in my mind is one that actually exists. So the the key takeaway here is one or a couple of things. One is a philosophical argument. Yep. Uh, and then 
you're not so much arguing like the God of Abraham doesn't this prove that you know all the animals went on the ark. We are talking about existence and greatness. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Now you're on the right track because the argument is what is the greatest thing possible, but there's something that makes it even greater. Gotcha. And again, the point of this episode is to give you stuff like this. It's going to hurt your brain. That's right. So that's why the ontological. So let me read. So Anselm, let me read you what it says here. For example, let me walk through this again. Anselm defined God as a being than which nothing greater can be conceived of. Okay. That's so nothing can be conceived greater than what I thought mm-hmm. and argue that this being must exist in the mind. Even in the mind, he said, of a person who denies the existence of God. Because if I tell anybody, and this is true what he said, if I go up to even an atheist and say, actually, you're not an atheist. There is no such thing as an atheist. Everybody's an actually, at best, is an agnostic. They can't really know. Mm-hmm. They would, they don't, there is no such thing as there is no God. They can only argue that they don't know that there's a God, which right, is right, right. agnosticism, okay? So he suggested oh, that if the greatest that if the greatest possible being exists in the mind, it must also exist in reality. So that's the point. If it exists only in the mind, then there's actually a greater being than the one that exists in my mind. That must be the one that is exists in reality, one in which both exists in the mind and in reality. And, and that's really what he's arguing. The crux of the argument here is the concept of greater, right? Is one which can be conceived and one which and one which exists. Hmm. Okay. So those are the two things, and I have them like highlighted here. Greater is important, and existence is important. So it's not saying you know, picture a blank canvas and then imagine a something you want. Like I imagine a fifty foot tall ice cream sundae. You know, like I oh it exists actually. It that's not the point. It, the point is this philosophical approach. So, yeah. So think about it this way. What and is use the enough words to where people just want to stop talking with you and then you win. <laughs> think about it this way. You, let's use the ice cream as an example. Think about the best possible ice cream, right? What mm-hmm. makes it even better? What is the greatest possible ice cream? Not the one that I can think of, but that version actually in reality. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Okay. I think I'm, I think I'm, starting right? to basically barely yes track, but yes yeah. yes think I'm about hungry, that but you yeah. But, yeah but think about let's go back and let's revisit that again the ice cream think about that ice cream mm-hmm. the best possible ice cream i think about with this and that and this flavors and that, and that and a swirl of that or whatever the case may be what what could one could i say is greater than the one i just thought of that great one actually existing the one that I experience that's right so what um so An it was Ansel, is that right? Anselm. Was was he a theologian or a philosopher? What yes, was his... he's a theologian actually. He yeah. was the bishop. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, okay. And how did this uh you know, I can imagine explaining this in the twelfth century. How did it go over? Was it well received? Is it is it commonly it was well, used now? It is well re- it is well yeah. received. In fact, Bertrand Russell, if you're familiar with Bertrand who Bertrand mm-hmm. Russell is, the great he was a great philosopher. He wrote a famous tract called Why I Am Not a Christian. Um, it's worth reading just because you know he who Bertrand Russell is. But Bertrand Russell had PhDs in mathematics and and philosophy um, from Oxford, I think, and is well recognized as the world's last great universal genius. Mm-hmm. Is the term usually applied to him? Um, he, he actually um, there's a story, and I think when I did the um, when I did the um, 
uh, podcast, when we did the Monday night on the ontological argument, he actually said, um, there's a story that he was walking back from the tobacconist, and he said, um, oh my goodness, it's this, this actually, I forget the quote, but something along the lines of, um, something about something in boots or whatever the case may be. And he said, the ontological argument makes sense. Wow. So he agreed with it. Now he, in the end, he said, well, there's some, there's a flaw in the argument. Uh, Emmanuel Kant says um, that he, he disagreed with the ontological argument because he says that existence is not a predicate. And by that, he meant that existence doesn't necessarily add to the greatness of anything. That in the mind, like conceiving of that Sunday for Kant was just as good as the reality of that Sunday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but the ontological argument is that the existence of it makes it greater than the conception of it. Interesting. Well, you know, whether or not this like totally resolves in our minds right now, and I mean, if you get the ontological argument after this episode, congratulations on being a genius. Uh, but I think, I think it's at least hits on a good point of like, you know, it's, this is what makes our arguments better is by staying on point like and and like in this discussion you heard us talking about the greatest in the existence like these are the key terms versus like just continually throwing stuff at people until they you know well well what about this or what about you know those are weak arguments to me is when people don't really stay on topic and don't formulate so i think this is something as we get in discussions with people start to really drill in on on what the actual issue is and i've talked to people like well how could god you know kill pharaoh or whatever i'm like is that is that really what's shipping you up? Is that really the thing? Or are you just looking for like, you know, one of those 1% whatever. So, so learning how to argue better, I think takes focus and, and sticking to the main things. Um, and in this instance, it would have been existence and greatness. That's the argument. It's not the argument of, you know, what happened to you, you know, this Sunday and what you felt, that's not the argument here. So learning how to stick to those things, um, I think, I think would help us. So as we, uh, anything else you want to say there, Lindley? No, I th- I think uh, you know ultimately what we want to do is ensure that people understand that the ontological argument is a powerful argument. It's a strong philosophical argument. It has much support in the philosophy, uh, the world of philosophy. But you know it's difficult to to get sometimes. That's mm-hmm. all. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you're out there listening, I am I'm going to be in the same boat with you. <laughs> still trying to wrap my I've still been trying to wrap my head around for like three years, um, but. I think we'll let's take a turn here into uh, discussing science as we we talked about earlier on today. Uh, you know, science is often used as the you know the the anti God. You know, I don't believe in God. I believe in science, and uh, it, it, I just don't think they have to go. You know, not. I don't think they have to be in combat with each other. Uh, and there's a lot of arguments I hear, you know, from the creationist side that I don't believe, even as a Christian, I'm like, I don't see like saying like, for instance, like if the, the earth has got to be what, 6,000 years old or something like that. And if it's not, then nothing exists. Like, why can't we lean on scientific fact that they've researched as well? So, um, that's a whole separate thing. See, we're not staying on subject. I'm not listening to my own podcast here. But uh, let's talk a little bit about science. Um, what? How is it? How is it misused? How can we correctly use it? And even just how would you define it, Lonely? So this is something that troubles me greatly. Is when I hear someone say, um, you know, I am on the side of science. Um, I I don't know what that means actually. When people say I'm on the side of science, uh, do they mean that they are on the side of some data and information. Um, does that mean that they have some well thought out 
argument for something? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that they have a theory that is in contradiction to some religious idea and that makes them scientific? Um, I think, do they have a special methodology that makes them scientific? I think these are all misplaced understandings. Now, these are some of the things that constitute part of science, I would argue, but to, to basically think that, say, I am on the side of science is quite troubling. Um, and what, A, what I find troubling about it is that many of the people say they're on the side of science are actually not scientists. So that already is confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually don't understand what science and scientists in that particular domain may be arguing. Um, and I think they misunderstand how science operates. Um, and here I refer people to th- to Thomas Kuhn, Karl Popper, Paul Feyerband, and a series of other sort of philosophers and philosophy of science thinkers who basically have shown that, you know, we really don't have a good job or understanding of what science is. Um, And the average person doesn't. Mm -hmm. I think what the average person is doing is confusing technology with science. Yeah. And here we confuse that, oh, I have this little device in my pocket, that's science. No, that's technology. It is based on a particular type of other technology, which may have its roots in a scientific sort of um, solution. But that's a solution, not necessarily just raw science per se. So I think people misunderstand science as, as a world. So science has changed and evolved over time. So, you know, when we take a look at this, for example, Newton's mechanics does not work in Einstein's worldview. Yeah. Right? Quantum mechanics doesn't work for either one of those two paradigms. Um, And so there we have three competing paradigms trying to understand the world in which we live. So if someone was to say, I'm on the side of science, are they in the Newtonian world? Are they in the Einsteinian world? Or are they in the quantum world? And I can tell you that very few people understand what any one of those three means, let alone all three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so people don't understand science. I, I, I think that's a misuse of the term. I think it's an attempt by many people to sound smart um, more than it is actually an un- a level of understanding. Um, now, people then tend to throw out like data points like, oh, this was the case, that was the case, and cite these things as if those are guaranteed with certainty. Here again, we misunderstand what science is. Science by definition is open-ended. By definition, science says, given more information, I can change what I know and understand. Hmm. And we have seen that happen multiplicity of times, right? We no longer, we thought Newton was great. We no longer think he's as great as we we, we thought, right? Mm -hmm. Now we build bridges and we fly planes and we put cars on the road and so forth and buildings go up and architectures and so forth based on Newton's mechanics, right? No one builds these bridges and, uh, or buildings with the, with the Einsteinian view of the world and, and his cosmology with E equals MC squared sort of backing the whole thing up. Um, but yet we do know that for all intents and purposes, when we talk about stars and planets and how space works and what time is, that Einstein is probably right and Newton is probably wrong. And I think that I love that you said like science is open-ended. Uh, to, to me, that doesn't, and it shouldn't, discredit what's come before. It's like saying, you know, a oh, horse and buggy is so stupid. Like, why would you use that? We could use a car now. First off, 
I live not that far from Lancaster. Talk to the Amish people up there. They might have a different opinion, but <laughs> right, but right. we needed the horse and buggy to get us to the car. We needed these these foundational things to get us to where we are now. To, so to just look back and say, well, it's all crap. Obviously, we don't still think the world is flat and those types of things, but we needed the the great thinkers of those days that to expand upon. Um, and so is that in the realm of the sci- the way to properly use maybe science as a generic term? Yes. I, so I think that many people misunderstand, like I say, keep, they misunderstand science, actually. Yeah. And, and they, they really fall in the line of what we call the logical positivists, which was a movement in the 20s and the 30s, which basically attempted to sort of say, hey, listen, I'm going to have crisp, clear statements about things. They're logically coherent. They're going to make sense of the world. And then that will lead to other crisp, clear statements. And, you know, we'll have these people with white lab coats on doing these experiments. And we'll come to some conclusions that'll be absolute right with certainty. Hmm. Well, what we realize, what that's not how actually science works. It's much sloppier than that. It was right? like early, early version of Twitter. That's <laughs> right. It just doesn't work, right? Yeah. So we, we do now know that science works very differently. For example, people collect data like science has always done. We collect data. We The, the scientist draws a conclusion based on the data that they've accumulated. But we both know that given more information, that their conclusions could be wrong, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, we no longer believe in e- the ether. We no longer believe in phlogiston. We no longer believe that the human mind is basically a tabula rasa, whereby, you know, you know, it's, it's a blank slate, right? Where, you know, it's the child is coming into the world with a blank slate and that they learn everything through experience, right? We no longer believe in the steady state theory of the universe. We no longer believe that light is a particle only or a wave only. We actually believe it's a, if I recall correctly, it is an, a particle in wave motion, right? Uh, it's a combination of both, right? Um, and I think that this is the issue now is that when science grows and evolves, it reaches certain points where we have to throw out certain theories. Mm-hmm. So we these are a bunch of theories that no longer make sense, right? Now, we get into this long-winded argument about evolution, and is evolution true, and does that, by definition, uh, mean that God doesn't exist? I think that this is an argument that doesn't make sense. It's an incoherent argument from both sides. There's too much going on and not enough information, right? Yeah. Um and whether evolution is right or not doesn't preclude the fact that there could be a God, right? So there are other ways to state, right, these things. Um, for example, what we call theistic evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not here to argue for or against evolution. I think that there's plenty of information and data points out there. Making sense of those data points is what science does, and science does a good job of that, generally speaking. But you do have, hey, people making claims that aren't true. There are thousands and thousands of scientific papers, PhDs, and other research papers that go into the public domain and go into libraries that are false, that we now consider to be absolutely false. And this is not just stuff from like the 1800s and the 1700s. This is stuff that just happened within the last 20 years. Not yeah. every theory and every idea is 100% correct. Yeah. In fact, many theories and ideas that we have now will be superseded by other ones. Are you telling me the t-shirt I had when I was seven years old that said Darwin's missing link was in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Are you telling me that that's not 
concrete fact <laughs> that I can rely on. So I've built my entire foundation on that T-shirt. Well, I think you can build it if you want to take a faith-based approach, but I don't think you can take, <laughs> take ah, it that well, far. Yeah. yeah. But I do think faith is important. So yeah, so yes, you can. Absolutely. It. So it sounds like the, the, the theme of, well, not the theme, but some stuff we can pull from uh, this episode today is one, probably should go read Thomas Aquinas' Five Proofs. Uh, I'm going to do that as well. Uh, but the idea that there's, you know, a good argument doesn't have to be 100% absolute. There's only one way to see this. Is that right? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that's something that, you know, we would struggle with as Christians was like, well, how can we be confident that there is a God? How can we feel absolute about this? How can we stake our life on that? Um, and you would say, well, there's always going to be maybe a little room for uncertainty. You know, I'd be like, I have like, and I, I, this is where I, I love that verse, like, God, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus didn't say, well, just leave, leave. You can't hang with me. You don't have enough. And he, I think God welcomes that. Would you say that, that we can feel um, confident in God while, while bringing him our doubts and, and having some of these rooms where, like, you know, there's things that are not fully clicking, um, and that's good enough? So I would say yes. And um, what makes that a yes for me is that we would never know everything in absolute, right? Again, we can have confidence in a belief, whether it be a scientific theory, um, whether it, it, it makes sense, we can say it's logically coherent, we can say it corresponds to the information I have, I can be confident in that um, <clears throat> from a scientific perspective, but at the same time, um, the, the an act of faith or, you know, it, it to believe in God is, is something that we experience um, mm, with a powerful yeah. experience, but at the same time, a shared experience. And again, to, if you want to take a look from a science perspective, um, I do think that there's a common experience across the humans, uh, across across all of history, that reaches out to the concept of God. And that in itself is a powerful argument for God's existence, um, think, because it continues yeah. to happen. Um, so I think that's that's I think that's sufficient enough for me to investigate. And then the question then becomes is um, what does that imply for me? And what is my next steps? If I do think there is a God, should I dig a little deeper? Should I look for that experience? Or should I close my eyes and pretend yeah. it's not there? Well, I love what you said about shared experience. I mean, that's to me, that points to the church. And it's much different to believe in something that you have a shared experience with millions and millions of people across you know generations versus... I did some mushrooms and I went to the Joshua tree and I saw this thing in the sky and now I want everyone to believe in this thing with me. But I, I would say, you know, that's what gives me hope. The more I, I feel like I get to know God, the more I've, I've, I've found that I don't need absolutes and that I'm never going to get a conclusion in a lot of these things, but God welcomes in the doubt. I guess you could say the my, the jontological theory <laughs> pun uh, is that, you know, I, I believe in a God that, that tells me to bring my doubts that that has room for my own errors. It doesn't make him any less perfect if I can't fully surmise him and sum him up and put him on a meme and then slap it down. Like it proves everything wrong. Um, that's the God I, I believe in that. And I think, and I think he is real and I think he welcomes in um, us and the cynics and the doubters and anyone that might be struggling on faith. Um, as you said, it, it should drive us to, to do more digging and to seek him more. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. I totally agree with that. That's, that's, that's the premise from which I'm working from. 
Well, this was great. Uh, I hope your brain hurts. I'm sweating. I think I have to go change my shirt. The ontological thing is gonna is a mind bender. Uh, but what we'll do is we, we have some spots uh, or some links in the in the podcast information. If you have a question, follow up. You want to write in, you can read uh, read in the description there, and you can reach out to us. We we'll, we're happy to do maybe even like a, just a quick email back, or we might even do a follow up episode about some of these questions we get in. You can leave a voicemail. Happy to interact that way, and uh, we'd love to hear feedback. We'd love to hear any other questions and i will be the mailman i will deliver them to lindley and i will i will edit the podcast that's my contribution but um lindley any final thoughts here no i just think that we need to have this conversation and keep it going i think there's nothing wrong with you know digging into what we believe why we believe how we believe um on either side of the argument yeah i agree well thanks everybody for joining us and we will see you next time 